Morning. Good to see everybody. I've been kind of watching in part horror, part amusement over the last few weeks as preachers and teachers have been coming up here with laptops and um, notebooks, I don't know what the difference is, and uh, tablets and iPhones, all sorts of technology. Very exciting. I'm here with some paper. Um, 50% of that is probably handwritten. Um, if we carry on the way that we are, I think I'm going to write the next lot on parchment with a quill. <laughs> Or possibly even some cave paintings, I don't know, we'll see how we get on. But um, nonetheless, uh, we're in Ecclesiastes 4 this week, and uh, as I shared back in January, uh, it's really exciting for me because on the underside of our wedding rings you will see we have, well you can't see because I can't move it around much anymore, but um, you will see that I have a class Ecclesiastes 4, um, 12, which um, forms part of what we're going to look at this morning. So um, a great honour for me, but uh, we'll get straight into it. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and there's no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all that lived and walked under the sun, followed by the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Let's just pray very quickly. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just ask, Lord, that you would reveal it to us this morning. Lord, you would open our hearts to you to hear everything you want us to hear, Father. And we pray, Lord, that we would come from this place changed, Father, as you change us to conform more to your likeness. In your name, amen. So there's lots of different themes going on in this collection of verses. We've got um, lots of different things going on. We've got things about leadership. We've got things about popularity. We've got things about companionship and isolation. We have things about work as well. So it's kind of an odd set of verses almost um, to put together. There's a, a kind of vague theme of companionship going throughout all of it. But because of the kind of differences in themes, I'm going to kind of deal with it in a slightly different way. So I'm going to start with verse 13. And I'm going to work my way through to 16, and I'm going to go back to the start and work my way through to 12, because that's where I want to end, basically. So not to confuse you. Um, so if you want to, I was going to say if you want to turn to um, the word, but in most people's cases, it's probably if you want to start scrolling or <laughs> typing it in and get yourselves ready. I'm also going to go into um, Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit, and I'm going to go into Matthew 19 a little bit as well. So if you want to have that ready, feel free to, but otherwise, we'll start. So in verse 13 to 16, we can see here we've got issues of leadership and popularity. And the idea of leaders chasing after popularity. Quite who um, Solomon is talking about here, it's difficult to say. It, it's possible that he's talking about David and Saul, kind of looking back before his time. It's even possible that he's talking about himself in a kind of self-deprecating way, talking about the foolishness of being an old man. It's difficult to say, really, but I suspect, because he's kind of talking about himself a lot in Ecclesiastes, that it's probably the latter. 
Wisdom is very much associated with age and experience. And in scripture, that's also largely true. For Christians, this is generally true, but God can give insight and understanding to anybody no matter what their age. Really, as Christians, we measure maturity not by age, but by the maturity that we have as Christians. I've known um, very elderly people in church who have never really moved on from kind of that initial milk and onto the meat of Scripture. Similarly, I've known very young people to be very grounded in Scripture and to have maturity and understanding beyond their years. So when we think about wisdom in a scriptural sense and experience in a scriptural sense, what we're actually trying to think about is the maturity that that person has in Christ, no matter how old they actually are. And what the Lord is doing here is he's shining a light on the meaningless of popular leadership. Now, leadership in the world is a different thing to leadership in the church. And one of the problems that we sometimes have is that we're conditioned by our experience in the world to view leadership in the church in the same way as leadership in the world. Um, one of the clear examples that we have um, from the world is political leadership. Very often, um, and it doesn't really matter what political party or what Western culture it is, um, very often you have some bright young thing start leading a political party and everybody likes what they're saying. They kind of gather around them. That's great. We're going to vote for them. Then they get into power. And then once they're in power, all of a sudden the other party develops their own bright young thing and everybody starts clamoring around them and they say, well, they've got all the good ideas. Let's start voting for them. There is a meaningless, almost a pointlessness in the co constant circle of that um, chasing after popularity within the world. There is an old Latin phrase. I'm going to teach them Latin this morning. Get excited. That's right. Um, the old Latin phrase goes like this. It says, bossa nova, similis bossa seneca. And it means meet the old boss, same as the new boss. Sorry, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Said it the wrong way around. In other words, there is a, it doesn't matter who's in charge. It's always the same thing. Now, for church leadership, we're asked to be something different. Okay, so if you're interested in being a church leader, listen to this bit. If you do want to be a church leader, the question, I suppose, is why? Because there are many church leaders that we can point to today that have massive churches, write lots of books, have a massive following, but actually when you look at what they're saying, what their churches are saying, somehow they've missed the gospel along the way. In other words, it's easy to build a church that is not based upon scripture because you can gather lots of people to you. If you're going to be a church leader, you need to be willing to say the hard things. You need to be willing to kind of put God first. You need to be willing to kind of stand on the gospel. So again, the question is, if you want to be a church leader, then the question is why? If it is to be popular, then make a different choice. If it is to stand on the gospel and to move people forward in the Lord, then it's probably the right choice. Better to be a church leader standing on the gospel with a church of 50 than to be a church leader standing on something different with a church of 5,000. It's better in God's word to stand for him. Right, I'm going to move us back to the start now. So we're going to go back to verse 4. And we're going to talk about work for a moment. I'll just um, remind you, we're just going to go through verse 4 to 8. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now, these verses are not saying that work is pointless. Okay, let me put that out there right at the start. It is not saying that work is pointless. 
If it were to say that, it would go against the whole grain of Scripture. Because continually in Scripture, Scripture says that work is a good thing that, man, that, sorry, that God has made for man. Uh, Genesis 2.15, the Lord took God... Sorry, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. It's one of the first things that God did for Adam. He sent him some work to do. And in fact, for some of us, work is sometimes part of our calling. As I've shared before, I'm a teacher in the educational sense. And it's probably not unusual that I kind of, my gift is teaching, but also I've sought to teach in the world. For some of you, you have a gift of caring and mercy, and therefore you might find in your workplace that you're doing things in which you're caring for other people. It's not unusual that your calling kind of forms part of what you want to do in the world in the sense of work as well. But the key to understanding these verses, and exactly what's being spoken about, is there in verse 4, it says, Achievement sprang from one person's envy of another. In other words, it's not saying that work is pointless. It's saying that work is pointless if we're only doing it and excelling in it because of envy of someone or something else. Now, for me, I don't know about you, but this is easy to recognize in the workplace today. How often do we notice other people, and sometimes ourselves, I put myself in that as well, doing things just for the boss's favor, doing things just to kind of appear a little bit better than the other person next to you seems like a bit of a threat. Okay, it's an easy, easy trap to fall into. And it's something that we have to be careful of. God, as I said, provides work for us so that he can provide for us. It's a good thing. And sometimes we're so busy kind of working to provide, we don't always stop to say, well, okay, God, but why do you want me to do this job? And that's sometimes an important question to ask. Because if God wants to use us through work, we need to make sure we understand why we're there in the first place and what he wants us to do. There is another challenge in these first verses as well, though, and that is the idea of being content. Um, verse 6 there says, Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls of toil and chasing after the wind. Now, very often, again, I feel we can be quite conditioned by the world. The world says, go and get that bigger house, get that bigger car, get that better job, get more money. It's that kind of constant thing that's kind of shoved in our face. Now, there's nothing wrong, don't get me wrong here, with wanting a bigger house, sometimes we need to. There's nothing wrong with actually buying things with the, the wealth that God provides us with. That's not a problem at all. But if that's our only motivation, then that becomes a problem. Because again, it's missing that first question, God, why is it you want me to be here? What is it you want me to do through this work? It's a difficult thing to say in the modern world. Perhaps sometimes we should be content with what we have. And when I was reading this, it was a difficult challenge for me as well, I can tell you. Because I know as soon as that television breaks, I'm not going to buy the same one. <laughs> there is sometimes a need for us to be content. And in that contentness, be thankful and appreciative of what God has given us. As I said, that's a challenge. That's not an easy thing. But nonetheless, it's a challenge. But the verses I want to spend my time on this morning, unsurprisingly here, are verses 9 to 12. And, and these deal, deal really with difficult things, difficult themes. They're dealing with themes of isolation and companionship. Um, I'll just read through verses 9 to 11. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Notice that the examples here are about traveling, first of all which seems slightly odd to our modern eyes because when we travel, we travel by car or train or public transport or whatever it happens to be. But travel um, in the ancient world was really done on foot. Okay? And so when they're talking about traveling here, 
the types of issues that they're dealing with, falling into pits and ravines, or um, cold nights, or dangerous people along the way, that's because they're traveling by foot. But notice that when they're talking about different types of relationships here, so they're talking about one, uh, sorry, two bidding better than one, whether that's friends or family or um, church fellowship, they're talking here about one person looking after the other on a journey. In other words, any relationship that we have, whether that's a friendship or within church fellowship or within family or within marriage itself, it's a constant journey that's always moving forward and is never set. So in other words, the example that's being given to us is that um, in companionship, you are never standing still. You're always moving forward. God created us not to be in isolation. Okay? Not to be in isolation. In Matthew 19, it does give this point. For there are eunuchs that were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And one who can accept this should accept it. So there are examples where God gives the gift of celibacy for people to be on their own. But that's very few. It's a gift that God gives. It's, it's, it's there that he gives to some people, again, to very few. In fact, the example that it gives us here is that two is always better than one. One is always vulnerable, vulnerable to attack in this situation. Two can defend themselves. Think about when Jesus sent out the disciples. Did he send them out on their own? No, he didn't. In Mark 6, 7, it says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him, and he began to send them out two by two. Why does he send them out two by two? Because if he sends them out on their own, then they're vulnerable to attack. They're vulnerable to temptation. If he sends them out together, two at a time, then they can protect each other. There is accountability. There is safety in that two rather than one. When Eve was tempted... Was she there with Adam at the time? Did the serpent wait till they were together? No, he waited until she was on her own because, again, had they been together, they could have reasoned, they could have warned each other, they could have spoken about it first. Instead, he waited until they were on their own. There is a vulnerability there in being on their own. And now we get to verse 12, and this is the one that I've been looking forward to uh, preaching on for some time. But I have to say again, it has been a challenge to remind myself of these verses and to look through them. Verse 12, to remind you, says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. In Genesis 1, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the livestock and wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. Now, first of all, it says, let us make man in our own image. These are unusual pronouns to use. Let us make man in our own image. In other words, God is using a plural pronoun to describe himself there. Why is God using a plural pronoun? Well, this won't surprise you at all. It's because God is three in one and one in three. He is God the Father, he is God the Son, and he is God the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's why he's using those pronouns. But the second word that is interesting in that section of Genesis is that he uses the word image. And I think that's an interesting one, because it causes a question. Does that mean, if God is saying that he made man in his own image, that God looked like man before he created man? Well, the answer I would say is no. Okay? Some of you look worried there for a moment. I wasn't going to bring out a strange doctor in or anything. The answer is no. Um, and it's really based upon the word image here. The word is selem. 
Salem, and it means resemblance of something, a reflection of something. So when God designed us, and God is triune, he is trinity, he is three in one, he designed mankind to reflect him in that way, to be free. So you are three in one. You are your body, the bit that you can see, hear, maybe smell. You are your soul, your emotions, um, your reasoning, your ability to think, and you're also your spirit, that innermost bit of you that is you and no one else. He reflects himself within you. Now, Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, this is the beginning of the famous Shema um, prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The problem is that that verse is difficult to translate into English because the word one there isn't one. In Hebrew, it's echad, okay? And it means oneness, a plural oneness. That is kind of, within the English language, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So you have to kind of make up a new word for it, which is oneness, a plural oneness, three in one. Now, the number three is always important in Scripture. If you see it, sit up, take notice. It means something. It doesn't matter whether it's Jesus rising on the free day or Noah's three sons or Abraham's three visitors. Jesus answered Satan's threefold temptation. Jesus' ministry lasted three years. We could go on and on and on, but three is nonetheless important. I'm going to skip down to um, Genesis 2 just for a moment to reinforce this point. So Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man named each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the sky, the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed it up in the place of flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, the reason I'm reading that is because the word there for one is the same word that God uses in that first Shema prayer, oneness. They become echad. They become oneness together, a man and his wife. So not only does God represent and reflect himself through you as an individual, but he reflects and um, shows himself through your marriage as well. What happens at a Christian wedding? You have a man, you have a woman, they make vows before God who they invite into their marriage. Okay? It is a cord of three strands, not simply two. What is it that you have in marital love? You have one person inside another person, and a third person is created. It is a reflection of God within marriage. I watch quite a geeky program. It's... Um, it's a bit, I know, I know you'd be surprised. It's a bit like, um, it's for people who don't find um, uh, Antiques Roadshow quite geeky enough, okay? It's called Fake or Fortune. And um, you'd like it if you watch it, I promise you. Anyway, you, you, they have a program every week, and they have this artist, this piece of art. And they're trying to prove that the piece of art is by a famous artist, because if so, it'd be worth a fortune. And the thing you learn about on that program is this that when an artist likes a piece of art and is happy with it, they sign it. They put their signature on it. So everyone can say, yeah, I did this. This is mine. But when they're not happy with it, they don't sign it because they don't want to be associated with it. Well, the thing for God is that 
he signed you as an individual because he's reflected himself within you. He shows himself, his triune being in you. But he's also signed himself in marriage. He's lifted marriage up and shown it as something wonderful because he's reflected himself within it. He wants to be associated with it. For him, it's a good thing. One of the things that um, worries me today is that you see um, marriage being redefined by different institutions. Um, Groucho Marx once stated that marriage is a wonderful institution, but who wants to live in an institution? It's <laughs> one of my favourite quotes. I like that. I couldn't resist putting it in. But one of the things that worries me is that we see marriage here defined today in different ways. Different countries are trying to define it in different ways. And the thing is that God has defined it. He has shown himself through it. So to redefine it, to show it as anything else, is trying to deny God, in a sense. Because he's shown himself through it. He wants to be associated with it. Were we to define it any other way, it's not showing God through it. And it is always a worry where one institution, human government, which was created much later than marriage, seeks to redefine something that was created far earlier by God himself. Now, depending on your translation for verse 12, as I said, it will, it will read a couple of ways. The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly, sometimes easily broken. Many years ago, um, some friends of ours got married. They were good friends, um, love them dearly. Um, slightly, um, you know, sometimes you get a couple you wouldn't really put together. Okay, they, they, were, they, they were that, but they were wonderful. They loved each other, they loved the Lord. And um, I've just pointed out, I've just pointed out there. They loved the Lord, and we went, to, I remember we went to a wedding, absolutely fantastic. Um, they were married, and they were happy, and it was great. And after about a year and a half, two years, Something happened. It was, it was very sad. And the, the lady fell away from the Lord. And as a result of that, she fell away um, from her husband as well. And she went off. And um, it, it was horrible to see. But after a while, although she lived quite a chaotic life in that period, and I won't go into what happened, um, she came back to him. And I have to say, I, I kind of sat in judgment on him. I know it's a terrible thing to say, and I regret it now. And I'm glad I didn't verbalise it at the time. But I kind of thought to myself, why are you taking her back? She's gone off. You know, she went and she, she did all the things she did. Now she's come back to you. You're taking her back. What are you doing? Again, I'm glad I didn't verbalise that. But nonetheless, that's how I felt. And they were back together, and they were in love. They loved the Lord, and it was good. Okay? And I can't remember how long it, it was after that, but um, we saw them at a wedding, um, somebody else's wedding. And... Something didn't seem right. There was something about it, and I, I couldn't place my finger on it, what it was. I remember we, t we talked about it later that night, and neither of us could quite work out what it was. But we found out about a month or two later that she'd gone off again, tragically. And she went off, and again, she, she lived a life that wasn't good. And uh, he got on. He, um, he continued in his life. And after about two years, she came back. And to my horror, again almost, he took her back. Um, again, I, I regret thinking that now, but I, I've shared before, I'm son of divorced parents. Sometimes experiences harden your heart, and you kind, of, you kind of work through it that way. But nonetheless, they came back, they were together, they were in love. It was good. And they, they went off, they moved somewhere else, and again, they, 
they stayed married and it was a good thing they they never seemed happier if I'm honest and we kind of lost touch with them because they, they, they moved further up north but tragically on the grapevine I heard again that um, she had gone off and she hadn't come back to him and I'm, t I'm telling you the story for a reason not first of all to sit in judgment on her actions at all um, but because sometimes the world in the same way that it can affect our mentality towards work and can affect our mentality towards popularity and leadership can also affect our mentality towards marriage and I suppose I want to get you to ask yourself two questions this morning and those two questions are these what does God think about marriage and what should we think about marriage as a result now let me deal with a, a couple of obvious points that might come from this Matthew 19 says this it says some Pharisees came to test him Jesus they asked him is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason haven't you read he replied that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they no longer two but one flesh therefore what God has joined together let no man separate why then they asked did Moses command that a man gave his wife a certificate of divorce and send away and Jesus replied Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. This was not the way it was from the beginning. And I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So there in Matthew 19, Jesus very clearly states that in the case of my friends there, he would have been perfectly legitimate to say, well, no, she's gone off. She's done this, that's and the other. I can divorce her. It's there in scripture. I am not saying, and I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning, I am not saying that just because we're Christians and we believe in forgiveness, that because someone does that within a marriage, that they should automatically be forgiven. I just want to kind of make that clear, first of all. What I am saying, however, is that God loves marriage. He loves it. He signed it. He put his name on it. Okay, He reflected himself within it. And so because of that, that's one reason why it's important. The second reason why it's important is because marriage reflects God's unconditional love to us, to each other. God shows each of us unconditional love. And marriage is a demonstration of that between two people. You are not perfect. Your spouse is not perfect. Your marriage will, as a result, not always be perfect. <coughs> But because God is involved in it, if it is a threefold strand, a threefold cord, then there is always hope within that, because the same God who shows unconditional love individually can show that unconditional love to you together. Can I just ask you to put the next slide for me? Lovely. So the friends I was talking about, the reason I'm sharing that story is because the heart marriage that that man demonstrated is I think something that we need to kind of catch hold of a little bit I am um, I follow I've shared this before I follow fierce marriage which is um, um, just a website that kind of encourages um, Christians within marriage really and it, it kind of um, this one came up as I was preparing for today and I thought well actually that's that's just about right and it says covenant love says I do even if you don't and I will even if you won't now, as I said, we talked about Matthew 19. There are conditions within that. But our attitude within marriage towards each other should always be that that vow that was made was made first to God and to each other second. I, you said I do towards God in that sense. 
before saying, I do, towards your spouse. And so it's important that we have that. And so I want to ensure that our view of marriage is such that we are willing to forgive where it seems impossible to forgive. Now again, I put that caveat. There is Matthew 19 there. Okay, I, I'm not going to do teachings on divorce this morning. That's a very, very big subject in of itself. But very clearly, Matthew 19, in the case of adultery, God allows divorce. So I'm not saying that just because you're married, you need to be walked all over. Not at all. It is a vow made by two people. But at the same time, what is our heart's response to God? What is our heart's response to marriage? And when I was thinking about um, how um, people do this and how it would be possible to do that, I suppose um, a quote from C.S. Lewis sprang to mind. Would you mind putting up the next one for me? It says, I am in love and out of it I will not go. I am in love and out of it I will not go. And I think in many ways that demonstrates not only our attitude towards marriage, but also our attitude towards God. It does say that somewhere, I promise you, don't worry. I can show you the quote if you're interested. So love really within marriage, and I could go on to talk about all the different types of love and the different Greek words for it. I'm not going to this morning. You'll be pleased to know. But love within marriage is, of course, not simply eros love. It's not simply um, romantic love. Okay. Now, romance is incredibly important. Preaching to myself there and clearly to a lot of men who are smirking at me as well. Okay, It's important. We need it. We need it in our marriages. But actually, the love that we display in marriage should be far more than that. It should be that daily choice that we make, that we say, I am in love and out of love, I will not go. God has caused himself to be reflected within us as individuals. He has caused himself to be reflected in us as marriages. And therefore, the fact that he reflects himself within all of that shows very clearly how highly he thinks that we should think of it. And so I'm going to, um, just as I start to wrap up, I'm going to leave you with those two questions. What does God think about marriage? And do you think the same about it? Let's just pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning, Father. I pray, Lord, that that would challenge all of us. Father, and that you continue to speak into our hearts this morning. I pray, Lord, for those who are divorced, I pray you would bless them, Father. I pray, Father, you would have your hand upon them. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to them. For those that are single, Father, again, I pray you would have your hand upon them, that you would minister to them and you would speak to them, Father, and that you would um, patience their hearts, Lord, for the person that you will bring along. And for those who are married, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would protect our marriages, Lord. I pray you would have your hand upon them. I pray, Father, for the men, that you would let them lead in the way that they should lead, in a gentleness that reflects you, Father. I pray, Father, that you would have your hand upon all of us this morning, that you would raise marriage in our eyes, Father, that it meets the expectation you have for it. And I pray that you would keep us all in your name.